0: Hello. Welcome to Legal Issues in Special Education. In 1948, in our country, only 12% of all children with disabilities received some form of special education. By the early 1950s, special education services and programs were available in school districts, but often undesirable results occurred. For example, students in special classes were considered unable to perform academic tasks. Consequently, they went to special schools or classes that focused on learning manual skills like weaving and bead stringing. Although programs existed, it was clear that discrimination was still as strong as ever for those with disabilities in schools. One of the first court cases I wanna take a look at is Beattie versus Board of Education. This was in the year 1919. Merritt Beattie, who was a young um, child, age 13, on March 27th of 1918, was in the fifth grade. He had cerebral palsy, speech, and motor difficulties. By all accounts, his memory and intellect were not affected. He attended his local public school without issue until a representative of the Department of Education visited the school and noticed him. She objected to him being placed in public school and recommended he attend a school for the deaf or a school for those with speech defects. They noted that his physical condition produces a depressing and nauseating effect upon the teachers and school children. That, unfortunately, is a quote. Merritt Beatty's parents appealed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Their decision was as follows, quote, The right of a child of school age to attend the public schools of this state cannot be insisted when its presence therein is harmful to the best interests of the school. There was only one dissenting judge, and he stated this, There is no evidence that as a fact, this boy's presence did have any harmful influence on other children. So that's where we started. Fast forward to 1950, 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education. In Brown, the court ruled that it was illegal practice under the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution to arbitrarily discriminate against any group of people. The court then applied this principle to the schooling of children, holding that a separate education for African American students is not an equal education. In its famous ruling, separate but equal would no longer be accepted. Brown set the precedent for future discrimination cases in education. People with disabilities were recognized as another group whose rights had been violated because of arbitrary discrimination. For children, the discrimination occurred because they were denied access to schools because of their disabilities. Using Brown then as their legal precedent, students with disabilities claimed that their segregation and exclusion from school violated their opportunity for an equal education under the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution, Equal Protection Clause. If Brown could not segregate by race, then schools should not be able to segregate or otherwise discriminate by ability and disability. So there's the mid to late 1950s. In the 1960s, parents began to become advocates for better educational opportunities for their children. Segregated special classes were not the most appropriate educational setting for many of of the students with disabilities. By the end of the 1960s, landmark court cases set the stage for enactment of federal laws to protect the rights of children with disabilities and their parents. As a result of numerous historical court cases, federal legislation for individuals with disabilities began to develop in the early 1970s. One of those um, pieces of legislation is section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act. Section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act is actually a civil rights law. It is not an educational law that was enacted in 1973. It was created to prevent discrimination against all individuals with disabilities in programs that receive federal funds. Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act was the first disability civil rights law to be enacted in the United States. It prohibits prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in programs that receive federal financial assistance. And it set the stage for enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Section 504 works together with the ADA, American with Disabilities Act, and IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, to protect children and adults with disabilities from exclusion and unequal treatment in schools, jobs, and the community. And it was, again, the first significant act to protect the rights of students with disabilities. They were, we are all given the right to be protected from discrimination in public education and the workplace. To be eligible for this protection, there's a two-prong eligibility criteria. One is that you must have a documented disability. Disability is not clearly defined in this um, particular law, and you have to have proof that the disability has a substantial impact on a major life activity, such as learning or social engagement. Moving forward, we get to one of the, the first federal education laws protecting the rights of, of students with disabilities and their families. and. Uh, guaranteeing an education. So this is Public, for, public Law 94-142, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, or the EHA. Because of the victories that were being won for students with disabilities in the early 1970s, parents and student advocates began to lobby Congress for federal laws and money that would ensure students with disabilities got an education that would meet their needs years of exclusion segregation and denial of basic educational opportunities to students with disabilities and their families set an imperative for a civil rights law guaranteeing these students access to the education system so in 1975 the stage was clearly set for a national special education law public law 94 142. In response to this advocacy, Congress enacted into federal law, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, EHA, Public Law 94-142, which was signed into law by President Gerald Ford. This law set forth federal procedural safeguards for children with disabilities and their parents. This law outlined the entire foundation upon which current special education practices rest. Senator Robert Stafford of Vermont said upon passage of this law today, Congress makes a very important statement of the principle about how we intend our handicapped children to be treated in the educational process. Unfortunately, we cannot change the attitudes of those who equate handicap with inferior Attitudes and prejudices cannot be legislated away. They will only be changed by the will of good men. In 1990, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act was reauthorized. Reauthorization is the act of amending and renewing a law. This law now became IDEA, IDEA the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act it continued to uphold the provisions set forth in Public Law 94-142. Notice that IDEA changed the terms from the previous law as follows. So it went from children to individuals. So instead of education for children, it was individuals with disabilities, and it changed from handicapped to with disabilities. So here we're starting to see person-first language, individuals with disabilities. IDEA was reauthorized once again in July of 2005. It is now Public Law 108446. It is still referred to as IDEA, except now we call it IDEA 2004, and it's actually IDEIA the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act. This act added an accountability feature around um, state testing, participation in state testing, uh, least restrictive environment, etc. cetera. It was aligned somewhat with um, No Child Left Behind in terms of accountability. There is a handout, uh, a link here on this handout I'm giving you that can compare the Americans with Disabilities Act, IDEA, and Section 504. So now let's look, think about some of the terms that you'll hear frequently as you interface with special educators in your schools. One is the least restrictive environment or LRE. This concept is that students should be educated with peers without disabilities to the greatest extent possible, and they should be educated in the school they would attend if they did not have a disability to the greatest extent possible. This is part of the law, and annually schools have to report data on the percentage of time that students with disabilities are educated with their not without disabilities. Another term you'll hear is FAPE, F-A-P-E, Free Appropriate Public Education. Again, this is an entitlement in the law. It means that services need to be free to parents. Appropriate has been defined by case law as designed to prove some benefit. One of the last landmark special education cases had to do with least restrictive environment. This entitlement is really as some people would call it the Chevy, not the Cadillac. In other words, schools do not have to maximize a student's potential, but they must be able to prove that students are making progress academically and socially. The most recent court case that sets Um, a parameter for um, what appropriate education is, is the Andrew v. Douglas County School District, which was decided in March of 2017. The, the, The decision in this court case was that special education programs must be reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's unique circumstances. Crystal clear, right? (laughs) So let's look at what least restrictive environment means in practice. You have to provide supplemental supports and accommodations in the regular classroom. The program must be reasonably calculated to provide benefit. A school has to be able to demonstrate progress. It's a zero reject, you can't say you can't play. So you can't just say, no, you can't go here because. You wanna look for a natural proportion of disability. In other words, the national average is, if the national average is 10 to 12%, you want to have 10 to 12% of your population identified as having a disability versus some places where it is 30%. The other piece of natural proportion is looking at um, overrepresentation of minority groups in certain disability categories. Students should attend their neighborhood school and a continuum of placement and services must be placement services and supports must be available through the school district from the least restrictive to the most restrictive. In other words, from the least intensive, the least amount of support that you need to the most amount of support that you need. In federal law, there are 13 disability categories identified for um, ages six through 21 in Vermont. There are 12. Those categories include specific learning disability, emotional disturbance, intellectual disability, multiple disability, deaf-blindness, autism spectrum disorders, visual impairment, deafness or hard of hearing, speech and language impairment, orthopedic impairment, traumatic brain injury, and other health impairments. So how do you decide whether or not a student is eligible for special education, and what's your role as a classroom teacher? Vermont has what some people refer to as three gates for determining eligibility. The first being that the student has to have a disability that is based on specific criteria. For each of the disability categories that I just named, there is specific criteria that a student must meet and a specific designated person or kind of person who can make that diagnosis, such as a physician, a speech and language pathologist, a psychologist, etc.? So the student has to meet the criteria as it's laid out in the definition, and it's very specific. The second gate is that this disability has to have an adverse effect on the student in a basic skill area. Vermont rules say that the student has to be below the 15th percentile on three of six measures. So in other words, the student has to be substantially below grade expectations. The third gate is that the student requires specialized instruction beyond what the regular and remedial program can provide. So it needs to meet all three of those criteria. They have the disability based on a specific criteria. The disability has an adverse effect on the student's performance in at least one basic skill area. The student must be below the 15th percentile on three of six measures. And the student has to require specialized instruction beyond what the regular and remedial programs can provide. If a student is evaluated and found to be eligible ineligible for special education services, they can then be referred to consi- for consideration for a 504 plan if there's a disability present or a plan through the school's educational support system. So what's your role as a classroom teacher? So classroom teachers will collect data for this second gate to determine a student's performance as compared to their peers. That might include grades, state testing, work samples, curriculum-based assessments, that would be your classroom assessments, et cetera, to provide evidence of adverse effects on basic skills. If a student is found eligible, the team will re-meet and develop an IEP or an Individualized Education Plan. So what are the components of the IEP? One of the components is the present level of performance that the student is capable of and what impact the disability has on their regular classroom performance. So that could include testing data, current performance in the classroom, etc. cetera. Measurable goals and objectives along with assessments that are designed for the student to make progress. And then the assessments, how are you going to determine the student has made progress? The team has to identify the exact special education services to be provided. They have to say the frequency, how often, duration, how long, who is going to provide the service and where the service is going to be provided. Related services also have to be noted related services are services such as occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech and language therapy, transportation, et cetera. Accommodations need to be provided, included including the accommodations and state testing. So in other words, a list of accommodations that help the student have access to uh, typical instruction. That becomes one of the most important pieces for you as a classroom teacher. For students age 16 and older, the IEP must include a transition plan as well. Who's on an IEP team? Members of the IEP team include the child's parents, guardians, or educational surrogate, if the student is under 18. For students over 18 who are their own guardians, they are the um, parent, if you will, at the IEP meeting at least one of the child's special education teachers or providers, at least one of the child's regular education teachers, a representative of the school system, which would be the local education agency or LEA representative, an individual who can interpret the evaluation results, representatives of any other agencies that may be responsible for paying for providing a transition service, for a student, the student as appropriate, and then any other individuals who have knowledge or special expertise about the child. That might be a therapist, um, a mentor. Parents have the right to invite anyone they like uh, to come to an IEP meeting. So sometimes a family friend, an advocate, etc. IEPs are required to be reviewed at least annually, or when a team member requests a meeting. I have also included here a link to the Vermont special education rules. Pages 69 through 88 are most important to you as a classroom teacher. I hope you have found this helpful.